Good morning. Great to see everyone here on this uh, gorgeous uh, Sunday morning. And great to have Siler and, uh, and I guess, one of the Shig bands. I know there are many musicians, so great to have you leading us in worship today. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus makes some powerful uh, observations about power. They follow... Um, a request that is filed by Mary, the, uh, the sons of uh, thunder, the, uh, James and John's mom, makes this request. She says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, grant that one of my sons may sit at your right and the other may sit at your left. And Jesus replies by saying, you don't really understand what you're asking and that's not going to happen. And then he turns to sort of put out the fire that has been lit among the disciples who are indignant uh, that James and John have been jockeying for honored positions because, of course, they wanted uh, honored positions. Or perhaps some of them weren't thinking that they would be first and second, but generally when there is a, a race to first and second, there's also a race not to be last. And so they're a little bit uh, sideways. And so Jesus turns to them. This is Matthew chapter 20, verse 24. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Today on this um, third and final message in this series on uh, first things, on sort of first principles in politics, trying to help us navigate the competing challenges of being citizens of two kingdoms, the city of God and the city of man, uh, I, I want to speak about power. And I want to do this in a slightly different tact than I had initially planned. Rather than thinking about uh, sort of the ramifications of power on the national and international scene, let's go to the real uh, nexus of crisis. Let's talk about power in the context of family dynamics. Who's going to sit in the front seat on the way home from church today? Who gets to decide what's going to be for lunch? Uh, who gets the remote? These things that everybody tends to fight over. I would like us to think about power in that context because the truth is we all have power. Every one of us. And we don't handle it very well. And I think there is a lot to learn from the examples of Christ about how we should handle power itself. So, let's take a step back. Uh, first question would be, what is power? What exactly is power? Well, I think it depends on who you ask. If you ask a physicist, they're going to say something like, power is the rate at which work gets done, and I believe there's even an equation for that. If you ask a political scientist, they're going to suggest that power is the ability to get your way. Power 
is the ability to get your way. Well, how do you get this ability? Where does this power come from? Well, once again, it depends on who you ask. If you ask a sociologist, they're going to say that there is this complicated, nuanced dance that goes on between two people. Uh, and it, it is sort of everything is involved, uh, the issue at hand, the age of the participants, uh, their physical strength, their height, their sex, the issue, the, the issue specifically, socioeconomic status, intellect, education, all these factors would be involved in terms of figuring out who has the power. And they would go on and, and note that people that know each other have often reached some sort of spoken or unspoken agreement on who has the power or how the power is going to be shared. And additionally, they would note that there are all manner of factors in play that, that can tip the balance of power. So if you ask a sociologist, you get an answer like that. If you ask a theologian, where does power come from? Well, they're going to say, well, power comes from God. Right? I mean, after all, he is the all-powerful one, the omnipotent one. And he has the power of ownership. He created all things and retains all rights. And additionally, God is the only one who has inherent power. We have derived power. We have power to do things, but only if there are inputs. If there are no inputs into us, there can be no outputs. Right? God has no inputs. God doesn't rely on anything or anyone. God has inherent power. So a theologian would give you a different answer to where power comes from. And by the way, the same theologian would likely go on to make two additional points. First of all, God has delegated power to us. He, he has uh, given us the cultural mandate, Genesis 1, tw uh, 24. We are expected to, to rule and reign over his creation. We are stewards who have been charged with creating an environment where things flourish. Right, where, where everything can be and become what it ultimately could be and become. That is our assignment. Unfortunately, this world is broken because of our sin. There was a power grab, and the result of this power grab is that everything is now not as it should be, and power is used in the wrong ways, and we often are using the power that has been given to us to build our own kingdoms as opposed to building the kingdom of God. And things are very messy. Well, I think that that description given by theologians is accurate. I think the sociologists are right in a different way, but I think we need to think uh, about power as it is described in this book. And to that end, I want to give you six uh, of what I would call the most important things you need to understand about power. Two of them I've already alluded to. The first one is that you have power. We all have power. Everyone, everywhere has power. Some people have more power than others, but everyone has the power of their response. 
Everyone has the power of their words. Everyone has the power of their example. We have a lot more power than we may realize. Everyone has power. And secondly, this power ultimately comes from God. We are stewards of power. We don't own it. Power ultimately comes from God. He is the only one who has power in and of himself. Our power is given to us, delegated to us. It's derived power. We are stewards of God's power and expected to use that power in ways that honor him. Number three. In today's broken world, power is complicated. In today's broken world, power is complicated. It can be used for good things. It can also be used for bad things. Some people, some theologians, su suggest that power is always bad. They, they describe it as uh, sort of coercion and suggest that we should not ever be forcing our will on others. I think that's a... I think it's a bad way to think about this. I, I think the analogy would be to say that all sex is lust. Um, it, it can be, but it doesn't have to be. And so I don't think it's right for us to think of power as being all bad. I think power can be good or bad. I just think the main point here is that it's complicated. The fourth point is that power corrupts, or at least quote Lord Acton, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Power tends to corrupt. The problem is we often don't have the ability to see this when it's happening to us. Uh, one of the, I think one of the, the most uh, significant novels written in the 20th century was uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And Tolkien, writing as a Christian, uh, was writing this uh, trilogy about, essentially, power. The ring in Lord of the Rings was a ring that gave power. And so everybody wanted this ring because it, in the hands of the, of the right people or the wrong people, they would be able to rule the world. The problem is, this ring corrupted the soul of whoever had it. And so uh, we see Gollum, who had had the ring for the longest, is this wispy, soulish, sort of lifeless, completely self-consumed creature. And we also see that Frodo, the, the hobbit, okay, so the, 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 the halfling, right, sort of half of a, the size or the physical strength of a person, so Tolkien calls him a halfling, and, and you don't miss the fact that part of what he is saying here is that power is perfected in weakness. So the only one that, the ring bearer, the one who has the assignment to deal with this problem is the, is the weak one, is the hobbit. Frodo agrees to take the ring and to take it to Mordor to try and destroy it. The problem is the ring corrupts him. And the longer he has it, the more it destroys his soul. And so in the end, he's unable to get rid of the ring. Right? Because we don't want to get rid of power. And so it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, 
play. It's a fascinating um, novel, and it makes this point, which is very critical, power tends to corrupt. The Bible, by the way, uh, is full of examples of this, starting with Adam and flowing through Eve and going to Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Saul and David and on and on that list would go. And it goes all the way into the present where we could point to political leaders, we could point to business people, we could point to professional athletes, and apparently every former governor of Illinois, uh, power tends to corrupt, and we could point to me, and we could point to you. We are corrupted by the power that we have. David is a great example. David, a man after God's own heart. David, who does so many things right early in his life. And then David becomes king. And he doesn't do so many things right after that. And he does a lot of very stupid things after that. Because he can. He has the power to claim another man's wife. He has the power to have somebody killed. He has power and it corrupts him. There's a fascinating speech that you can read online by Vaclav Havel, the late president of uh, Czechoslovakia and then later on the president of the Czech Republic. Havel was um, a dissident. He was a poet and a playwright uh, at the time of the former Soviet Empire. He was living in Czechoslovakia and agitating against communist rule. And he suffered for this, and then, to much to his surprise, after the, the wall crumbled, he ends up as the president of Czechoslovakia. In 1991, uh, not long after he'd become president, he is awarded um, a prize, uh, an international prize for his work. And in the context of, of accepting this prize, he gives a speech in which he essentially says, I am now corrupted by the power that was given to me. I have become exactly what I despise. And I can't believe it's happened, but it's happened. He says, look, look I, 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 uh, people go into politics for one of three reasons. They go into politics because they want to help other people sincerely. They go into politics because they have a need to be affirmed on a big level. Or they go into politics because they like the perks. He says, now nobody will ever say that they're going into politics because they have ego needs that need to be affirmed or because they're going in for the perks. Everyone will always say they're going in in order to serve. He goes, but it's complicated. And he said, and what I have found is although I absolutely believed that I was only going in to hold this office for the good of others and that it was a sacrifice I was making to become president and that the perks of the job were something I had to endure. He says, at some point, I crossed the line. At some point, you sort of realize you're not willing to give up the affirmation and the perks. He says, you know, I, I was convinced that I needed a driver because... I had all these important meetings to go to. And he goes, then I was convinced that I needed a police escort because I couldn't waste my time stuck in traffic. For the good of the people, I had to get to the next meeting. He goes, then I was persuaded 
that I couldn't wait in a dentist's office for a dentist to see me, that the dentist needed to come to me. And he goes, then I was persuaded, right, that, that I couldn't serve anything less than the best food of the land when I was entertaining. And I was also persuaded that I shouldn't have to wait in line to buy it, and I was persuaded that I shouldn't fix it myself. He says, I was persuaded of all these things, all rational decisions, every one of them. And he says, the problem is, the line is hard to see and easy to cross. And he says, I've become what I despise. And he says, I was, I was convinced it would not happen to me. But power tends to corrupt. Now, <clears throat> I don't have my glasses on, so I suppose I could be wrong when I say that the President of the United States is not here today. Uh, I won't put them on and check. I will, will say, though, what I know to be true, that while the President of the United States is not here, uh, there are lots of people in this room with lots of power. There are lots of people in this room uh, who are the presidents of companies or who are the owners of businesses or who are partners in firms or who are something where they have a lot of power. There are lots of people in here that have lots of money. Money tends to equate to power. There's a lot of power in this room. So let me say it this way. Um, it's very hard to have that power and not be corrupted by it. It's very hard to hold on to that power and to not begin to think of yourself somehow as the exception to the rule. And eventually, to find yourself saying, as Havel did, you know, it's not just that I'm doing all these things for the people. I am the president, right? I mean, this does make sense. I am the president. It's, it's very difficult not eventually to say, I am the founder of this company. I am the one that put my run money at risk. I am the one who worked hard. I am the one who went to all these years of schooling. I am the one who did this. And all of those things would be true. And I actually think that there ought to be benefits for all of those things as well. Right? I don't want the president of the United States or the president of somebody that, that I'm investing my money in a company. I don't want them sitting in traffic doing nothing. Right? I, I want them working. There's justification for all of this. I think that that there should be benefits to these things. I think in this broken world, that's the best system we can hope for. But here's the point. That power corrupts. That power somehow persuades us that in some way we are different, an exception, better than, more deserving of. That's the problem with power. Maybe it's best to think of it this way. Uh, our motives are always, at best, mixed. Sometimes they're just bad. I mean, sometimes they're just wrong right out of the gate. But even when we think they're as good as we can get them, they're always still infected in some way by our sin. And so our motives are, at best, mixed. There's a great example of this in Acts chapter 8. Simon, a Samaritan magician who enjoys power in Samaria. I'm reading in Acts chapter 8 with 
beginning with verse 9. It says, There was for some time a man named Simon. He practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. Then Philip comes into town. Philip preaches the gospel. And Simon repents and believes and is baptized and he begins to follow Philip around for a while he's in that exciting new believer phase he's learning everything he can learn he can't believe how good grace is he can't believe that that he can be forgiven he can't believe that there's eternal life he's thrilled by everything he's following Philip around then Peter and John come into town and they begin to preach and more people come to faith and Peter and John are going around and they're placing their hands on people and Miracles are happening. And at that point, Simon says, I want that power. That's it's not bad power. Right? It's the miracles of God helping other people. It's good power. He says, I want to be a part of that. And so he goes to Peter and he offers to buy it. And Peter says, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Men and women, I would submit that our motives are at best mixed. And we just have to understand that. We have to understand that about ourselves and understand how difficult it is to see that our motives are not always perfect. So, We all have power. Power ultimately comes from God. We are stewards of his power. Power is complicated and complicating. It tends to corrupt. Consequently, we don't use it as well as we might. Moving on. Jesus is the perfect example of how to use power. Jesus is the perfect example of how to use power. For starters, he had power. I mean, more power than any of us will ever have. John 1 tells us that all things were created through Christ. He's president of creation. He has power. (laughs) Now, we know from Philippians that he somehow set some of that glory aside, that at the incarnation, that that he becomes less through addition, right, by adding humanity to deity, while remaining fully God he becomes fully man but somehow in that process it is it is a humbling process and some aspects of his power or glory are 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 put in a blind trust or are uh, set on on hold it's hard to talk about this without making some sort of theological heretical statement about it so I'll just stop trying let's just say that that he has less power but he still has remarkable power. So, through his public years, we see that he has power over nature, he has power over sickness, he has power over death, he has power over evil, right? I mean, he, you know, he can calm the storm, he can, he can multiply the food, he can turn water into wine, he can heal the sick, he can give sight to the blind. I mean, he has power that we do not have. And that power doesn't have him. I mean, remarkably. He is able to to keep a distance from that power. We see this at the very beginning of his ministry after he's baptized. He is tempted. And Satan essentially offers him power. 
The power to do good turns stones into bread. The power to do amazing religious uh, feats like jump off the top of the temple and be saved by the angels. The power to have uh, control over all the world, the kingdoms of the world. Satan offers him all of this. And these powers would be nice to have if you're starting out as a young rabbi. But he walks away from that. And then later we'll see that they try to make him king, and his followers try and get him promoted, and he walks away from that. Right? He, he washes people's feet instead. Jesus has power, but it doesn't have him. And then we see, remarkably, that he uses that power to serve others. Jesus has power. He does not use it for himself. He uses it on others. Can you imagine how easy it would be if you were Jesus to justify using your power to give yourself a life of ease? I mean, just, hey, I've taken a big demotion to take this job. And uh, I'm not getting treated fairly. And this won't hurt anybody. Right? I'm not taking it out of the. Uh, I'm not taking it away from anybody, right? And uh, and I deserve it, right? And uh, so I'm just gonna just gonna take this for myself. I mean, it, it would. I'd do it. <laughs> it would be very easy to justify uh, a life of ease, and Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he uses his power for the benefit. Of others and it is a remarkable thing and additionally if we look to Jesus as the perfect example we see in this unthinkable way that the way he serves most is actually by suffering Andy Crouch um, author a friend uh, Christianity Today former campus pastor at Harvard Crouch uh, spoke on power about two months ago in Washington, D.C. I was there. Um, he makes this statement. At the center of it all, we find a 30-something man with considerable political savvy, a gifted storyteller with a keen eye for shrewd symbolic acts. Moreover, he has the divine power to multiply loaves of bread, heal the sick, and raise the dead. Yet his most decisive, powerful act is not an action at all, but a passion. Suffering, the brunt of power itself, grieving, forgiving, waiting. If Christians are sometimes called to acquire power, we should probably begin by watching our Lord Christ abandon it. Well, uh, as I mentioned, the sermon took a slightly different tack this week than planned. This series has been a little bit more about political power and how we're to understand and navigate that. If, if I was still headed down that track, I would develop a number of points. Uh, I would highlight the idea that institutions multiply power, right? Uh, businesses, for instance, get, get alignment of a bunch of people and they, they multiply power and as a result, there are people that end up with lots of power. And institutions then can sometimes give that power to other people. You might get hired into a, a business at a certain level, and you now suddenly 
uh, you have, you're given lots of power. We could talk about uh, the, the challenges of managing this power well, and then jump over to the fact that when we look at countries, the power is even greater. Because for the most part, you can avoid a business if you don't like it, but you can't avoid being a citizen of a country. And the governments have powers, right? They have, they, they, they have powers by agreement, and they can force us to do things. And not just to drive on the right hand of the side of the road, not the left. They force us to pay taxes. They force us to comply with building codes. They force us to do all kinds of things. And they can require us to serve on juries or in the military. And they have the, they have the power to, to declare war. They have the power to, put, to incarcerate people. Governments have huge amounts of power. And, and if we were going to head down this path, I would also just point out that it's, it's imperative that we understand that God ordained the state and the church to have two different functions. And I would at least highlight the fact that in the last 30 to 40 years, by and large, the evangelical church acquired political power and was largely corrupted by it and misused it and was naive in the way it works. And we tried to use it to do things that didn't ultimately work. Pal, uh, Thomas and Ed Dobson, who were um, lieutenants of the Moral Majority, helped found it in the late 70s and, and lead it for 15 years, wrote a book called Blinded by Might. And they said, we just, we went, we did this wrong. We went about this the wrong way. Now, please hear me. I am not suggesting that Christians should not be involved in government or that the church should not influence the state. But it is more complicated than we often make it. We are often very naive, easily corrupted, and frequently selfish, using our power to our own advantage rather than for the common good. I hope, I dearly hope, that some of you who are young uh, will consider a lifetime of service in the public sector. We need thoughtful, competent, uh, Christians to be involved at every level of government, serving. And I thank those of you who are involved in these efforts. And I know that it is hard and it is, it is challenging and difficult. We need, as a church, uh, to be helping to shape the state. We need to understand the differences between them and not overstep that. But that's a different sermon. I want to end this one heading down a slightly different path, having acknowledged that we all have power, this power is on loan from God, having acknowledged additionally that, that it tends to get complicated and it tends to corrupt and not many of us use it well, I want to, to challenge you to do a couple things. First of all, I want to challenge you to be suspicious of your own power. I want to encourage you to take a step back and to look at the power that you have. And to understand that the most natural thing to do is to assume, like Havel did, that we will be an exception. And then to recognize that almost no one ever is. Power tends 
to corrupt. And we are blind to the corruption in our own life. Which is why, number two, I want to encourage you to be deliberate about accountability. Nathan saves David from further trouble. Nathan's a prophet. He goes into David after David has has, uh, slept with Bathsheba and had Bathsheba's husband killed. And he tells a story to David and, and sets David up. And when David gets very mad about what someone has done, Nathan says, guess what, O king? It's you I'm talking about. And, and he exposes, he holds the mirror up to David in a way that David can actually see how ugly he has become. Right? We need Nathans. We need somebody who can tell us this. And, and if you have uh, lots of power, you probably don't have this. You have lots of people that tell you what they think you want to hear, not the truth. The exception to that would be, likely, your spouse if you're married. But that sets up a dynamic that is not particularly healthy. If you have power, you likely don't have that. And odds are, today, you don't have it anyway. Right? Because we tend to avoid the people who challenge us and who push us. And I just want to say, we have to invite that into our life. We have to go out of our way to be able to see ourselves for who we are. I've shared this in the past, but with a couple friends, uh, there's a number of different things that we've done. One of them we just call two plus one. Two affirmations and a challenge. Right? So someone's on the, I guess you'd call it a hot seat, but it's, it's not a, it's the, it's a safe environment. It's a, it's a privilege to be in the hot seat. And someone says, I want to affirm you in this. And then I want to challenge you in this. I don't think you see this in your life. I don't think you see yourself the other way other people see you. I think you've got to grow in this area. And then I want to affirm you again in something else. And then the next person goes, the same person, and says, I want to affirm this. I want to challenge this. And when, the, when you start to hear the same things from people who are for you, right? Then you go, I really got to work on this. Now, there's other ways that you can do this. There's other scenarios. There's 360 reviews. There's a variety of things that can be done. The point is, you have to go out of your way to invite that kind of feedback into your life. Otherwise, you don't see how you are overplaying your hand. And then finally, we need to use our power to serve others. That is Christ's example. He used the power that was given to him for the good of other people. We cannot be Christ, don't have to be Christ, can't follow his example to the extreme that he did. It's not necessary. He did everything that needed to be done. But he is our example. And He is an example in humility and service. We need to use the power that God has entrusted to us for a time in ways that honor him and help others. Let me pray for us.
Lord God Almighty, we um, thank you for the remarkable example of your Son, our Savior, who humbled himself, who served, uh, who, who stepped down, who kept power in check, who suffered. Uh, we are... We want to confess we are blind to our own challenges. We are blind to our blind spots. We justify our own behavior. We are guilty of all of that. And some of us have lots of power and are particularly blind to the ugly ways that we've used it. And we confess that. Pray that we could see how we could be great stewards of the opportunities that you give us to serve others with the power that we have. Guide and direct us to that end. In Christ's name, amen. Would you please stand and sing with us our closing song? Mm -hmm.